Warren Buffett, BlackRock, and other institutional players dominate investments in commercial aviation. Why? Because it's one of the most profitable and predictable alternative assets that exists. And it's not tied to other markets such as real estate and the stock market. Is it safe? Well, imagine triple net leases to the likes of American Airlines and British Airways. Income is contractual and guaranteed by some of the biggest named airlines in the world. That's why this kind of investment was never available to the ordinary accredited investor. That is until now. Visit accesswealthaviation.com and check it out for yourself. Invest in an institutional team with over 200 plus years of combined investment experience in the aviation sector. Conservative investing with double digit returns and tax advantages. That's accesswealthaviation.com. Accesswealthaviation.com. You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast coming to you from Montecito, California. And um, I am so excited to uh, have today's show. It's, uh, you know, we're doing another Ask Buck, which, you know, we are in a marathon of Ask Buck shows. And actually, this is not even going to be the last one. But uh, I asked a couple of my uh, fellow Wealth Formula Network uh, community members to join me, uh, and they did. So it'll be a lot more fun today. Uh, as you listen to this show, I do want to, again, uh, consider uh, if you like this kind of thing, if you like sort of the ability to have others to run uh, questions by, et cetera, um, you know, you want to be part of a mastermind do definitely check out Wealth Formula Network. Uh, of course, Wealth Formula Network started as a course. It was um, basically your roadmap to real wealth, and you can check that out at wealthformularoadmap.com. Uh, the course is good. I mean, it's got you know Kim McElroy and Tom Wheelwright and all these really smart people to give you a foundation. But what's happened with Wealth Formula Network is that it's really taken on a life of its own, and that community... Uh, is a very, very uh, good place to, I think, raise your financial IQ in a big hurry. Uh, so check it out. Uh, go to wealthformularoadmap.com and uh, just know that uh, today's show is kind of the way every other week is on our conference calls. We basically go through a lot of topics. We have these guys who you know learn along the way and they contribute. They're answering questions that I don't know the answer to myself. So it's a lot of fun. And we're going to get to it this show right after these messages. What do the Rothschilds, the Romneys, and the billionaire hedge fund managers know that you don't about growing and protecting wealth? As you might imagine, the wealthy have a few tricks up their sleeves. One strategy allows you to grow wealth tax-free at a compounding rate with no volatility. It protects your money from creditors and lawsuits and it lets you invest the same money in two different places at the same time. How about that for amplifying wealth? To learn more, go to WealthFormulaBanking.com. Again, that's WealthFormulaBanking.com. Self-storage is a necessary evil. It's where you keep your stuff and forget about it. No wonder this stuff is so profitable and recession-resistant. The Wealth Formula community, well, we've benefited from that. We've made lots of money in this space with Reliant Real Estate, one of the largest self-storage companies in the country. With an average investor internal rate of return of almost 34%, with hold times just over three and a half years, 
these guys know what the meaning of velocity of money is. If you're an accredited investor, make sure to check out what they're up to right now at ReliantFund4.com. Again, that's ReliantFund4.com. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today, uh, we are going to do something a little bit different. We have another Ask Buck episode, obviously. We still have a ton of questions, so this is not even going to be our last one. But in order to spice it up a little bit, I had invited everybody, um, well, anybody who wanted to within our Wealth Formula Network group, which is like 90 people. Uh, uh, but if they wanted to uh, be on the show and help answer some of these questions, and of course, two people showed up here. So there's a very popular, <laughs> there was a popular choice, I'm sure. Um, anyway, I do appreciate uh, Jerry and uh, Jerry Gosnell and Matt Stanese. Matt, did I see your name right? Your last name? Yeah, that's, uh, that's pretty good. Yeah, I'll take it. Yeah, it, these guys are part of Wealth Formula Network, which is our, um, you know, which is our, really our online, you know, community. We do these biweekly Zoom phone calls, uh, conference calls, whatever you want to call them. They're not calls because they're video, right? Um, I don't even know what you call this anymore. Uh, but they're like sort of mastermind sessions and stuff. Um, and we just had one yesterday. Was a really good one, by the way. I thought it was very, very intense. Um, and uh, I'm going to actually rehash something that we talked about yesterday for clarity, uh, real quick uh, before we begin as well. But anyway, wanted to get these guys on here to kind of participate because I get lonely sometimes. And uh, you know, having a Jerry, uh, Jerry's been on the show before as well, and and, and Matt, uh, they're going to uh, you know help us out with some of these questions. And we might have um, another person join us as well. She was going to join, but um, not on yet. But hey, we're going to keep it real here. So, all right. So, uh, guys, first of all, uh, real quick, Jerry, tell us a little bit about yourself real quick, just so we know yeah. who you are. Sure, Buck. Jerry Gosnell. I'm uh, from uh, outside of Valley Forge, Pennsylvania. I've been with the Wealth Forming Network a few years now, and um, uh, I'm very appreciative to be a part of it because I'm learning a lot still each day and um yeah that's me sounds good and then matt matt you represent the physician world right uh yeah i'm a urologist uh recently left my uh my practice uh here in uh, uh southern hampshire um been with the wealth formula group for about six to eight months i think and uh really enjoyed the uh the education and the knowledge that i've acquired with the group and thanks for having me on the show yeah. And one thing I would just say, uh, you know, I tell people all the time when they're thinking about joining Wealth Formula Network, it, it does end up being like kind of a little bit of a, it's a real community. It's turned into a real community. I mean, people, I mean, you're in New Hampshire and you're in Pennsylvania and uh, I'm in California, but it's, you know, you kind of, I don't know, it's kind of cool. It's kind of cool that way. And we have these uh, big conversations, but anyway, um, before we start with the questions, I want to, uh, one thing that came up yesterday and Matt, I know you, you were very curious about this too. We had this uh, question yesterday about um, if one spouse is a real estate professional and uh, you know, the other spouse is a W2 wage earner, right? This was, you know, this, uh, we've called this many times the, the Holy grail uh, being able to take those passive losses against uh, active income. And uh, in many regards it is. And for most people there's, you know, there, I mean, go for it. I mean, it's, uh, if you can do it. Um, there was one thing that was brought up yesterday that uh, was an important clarification. And that is that if one of the spouse, if that spouse is a W-2 employee, 
uh, it was the case previously that um, that that limitation on the deduction uh, for W-2 income was a half million dollars, right? Now, for most people, that's still a pretty good deal, right? I mean, you know, I mean, how many people out there have a half million dollar spouse and then they're a real estate professional themselves? So, so it didn't really matter, but there was this, I, you know, we do have plenty of people in the group who are, who are rocking and rolling way above that level. So it became um, a question. And I said at one point, I think I recall something recently in the uh, tax law that eliminated that that limitation. And indeed, it turns out, and I can check with your CPA, but I checked with mine and you know who mine is. And he said, indeed, that, uh, that limitation does not apply to 2020 because of the CARES Act, which is the irony of it is there's at least one of our colleagues in the group is going to benefit tremendously from COVID, right? So anyway, um, so that uh, that's a clarification on that. Um, hopefully, it, do you guys have any other questions on that? Any follow-up on that or no? Well, I think the thing that was interesting to me on that was I didn't understand how it was that your involvement in your own real estate activities, um, when combined with the potential depreciation from the limited partnerships made it more difficult. So if you had multiple limited partnerships, the fact that you had to aggregate those limited partnerships and the depreciation with the other activities made it uh, a little bit tricky to use the depreciation in, the, in just kind of a straightforward way. And that was, uh, I guess, something I learned last night, which was- uh, Yeah, I mean, it can be done. It's just, you know, listen, when you get into these big numbers and stuff, you, you, know, you just have to be careful. And that's where a group like ours is really, really helpful, I think. Um, anyway, I'm going to move on from that. Cause we literally, I mean, we dove so deep in that. And at one point I was like, there's no way like 90% of the CPAs out there would not have a clue what we were talking about at that point, but it was, um, yeah. uh, that is, it's a sophisticated crew. So I'm going to start with a question from Yaron uh, Miller. It's actually a second part of a, a two part question that he had, but they're kind of different. So I thought this one would be useful. And I know we've kind of talked about this in our group, uh, but he says, he has a question and he relate, uh, as it relates to equity held in properties I own. He says, I have a fair amount of equity in my primary uh, property, which I assume he means his home. Does it make sense uh, to do a cash out refi and use that money to invest in some of the deal flow you offer? Or is it better to pay off of my property sooner? I was thinking that from an asset protection standpoint, having as little equity in my property would be better thoughts. Okay, so I'm gonna start off with this one. So Yaron, um, first and foremost, I love the fact that you just pointed out a fact uh, that debt on your property is the single best thing that you can do for asset protection. So that is, uh, that is, a, that is a very, um, that's something that not everybody is thinking about and it is a very valuable thing. Um, so listen, there are two ways to really, I think, think about this in my opinion. One is the math. And then there's the other, which involves a lot of psychology. The math, if you just think about the math, well, it absolutely says cash out, you know, do your refi, you know, uh, lever to the hilt and invest as you should, uh, you know, invest all that money because you should be able to get better returns on your money 
than the interest that you're actually paying on that mortgage, right? But of course, there's the psychological element. And a lot of us have this, and I get it, which is that you don't want to feel like your house is, you know, not paid for. We've been sort of programmed in many ways, you know, to think that debt is bad and that, you know, the house you live in, at least you want to have security in that, right? You don't want to, you don't want to lose it because you can't make your payments. What's tricky is that it's, it's actually a little bit more complicated than that, right? We, we've talked about it in this, um, again, in Wealth Formula Network, and we've talked about it, some other options, which kind of represent a happy medium, which I like, which I'm going to present to you because I think it's interesting. Uh, that is, first, if, okay, maximizing your debt on your personal home, right? Uh, and why would you want to do that? Again, because you don't want it to be a big target for debt collectors or, or your bank if you get in trouble, because you're more likely to get foreclosed on if you have equity in your house. Um, so levering up, but then actually keeping a level of liquidity somewhere that would essentially function the same way as paying down your principal. So, I mean, listen, that principal that you are paying down is essentially dead money, right? Um, and it's money that's really not in your control, right? Once you give it to the bank, they don't have to give it back to you. Um, so for example, here's an example. You may be leveraged again completely and as maximally as you can be on your personal residence, but you could simultaneously take equity that you would be putting in as principal and you could be putting it into a wealth formula banking uh, account that's growing at, you know, five and a half percent compounding. Okay. That, so that's just one thought. The idea is to keep it liquid, obviously, but that's a very, one of my favorite ways to keep things liquid. And then in that case, the arbitrage alone would put you ahead. Uh, and then you also have cash you could use if you want to do for any other purpose. Um, and then the money in the wealth formula banking uh, policy is, also, here's another benefit of it is that it's completely creditor protected and you can access it at any time. So remember, the only time you can't go and get the equity out of your house through a HELOC is if you really, really need it badly. <laughs> and that's what we saw back in 2009, where, you know, home equity line, you know, credits, et cetera, were frozen. You know, if you've got bad credit all of a sudden, doesn't matter if you got bad, you know, your home equity line of credit, it's pretty much you, you're not going to be able to take money out. So if you're in trouble, that is exactly when the bank is going to say, no, thank you. You're on your own. And hey, by the way, it looks like you got some equity in that house and we might want that too. So keeping a level of um, liquidity that represents principal in your house, but dislocating it actually from your house is a concept that we've talked about in this group, which I think is an interesting uh, concept. Guys, do you have anything to add to Yaron's question? Yeah, I mean, maybe this is Jerry, I'll take a, a stab at this as well. So you, you don't learn this in school that we're, that we're teaching you now, um, and it's all legal. It's just, we've never, it's never brought to the attention. So do yourself a, a favor for Christmas, maybe get in, buy into the Wealth Formula uh, Network and you're gonna learn a lot. But what I was gonna say is, I, I've leveraged 
most of my assets, including my primary home and some secondary homes that I have. And I've actually done exactly what Buck said. I put it in Wealthomia Banking. I put it in the other investments that are growing. I started doing that a few years ago, and now I'm just starting to see a return on that, which at first you don't see it, but you should not let any dead equity sit there. It should be invested and uh, put into something else and it'll pay off in dividends at the end. So that's my comments there. Matt, do you have any comments? Uh, yeah, I mean, I agree with everything that you, you both said. I think um, uh, to your point about the educational piece and not getting this, I think the idea of paying off your, your mortgage uh, quickly and being debt-free is something that uh, applies to people that maybe don't have financial education. And as you get more financial education, you realize that the idea of wealth building, it's there's there's a game that you never learned the rules to that you never knew existed. And when you start realizing that this is occurring, you can start being a lot more intelligent. And I went through that transition myself. A couple of years ago, I was like, pay down, pay down my mortgage. Once I don't have a mortgage payment, it's going to add an extra few thousand dollars into my monthly cash flow. And then I can use that to invest. And it's completely the wrong way to think about it. And I think the aha moment I had was, you know, when you realize that equity is illiquid, it doesn't have any real rate of return. And uh, it's at risk either because of a downturn in the market and loss of value due to the, just the market being poor, or because of the um, uh, potential, uh, um, you know, asset protection things that, you are, that Buck already spoke to, that, um, that you really want to move as much of it out of it as you can. And I think with the caveat that you have to have, be educated and you have to feel confident in that, in the ability to take that money and invest it someplace else where you're gonna earn a better rate of return. Yeah. Uh, then leverage to the extent that you can cover the debt service. And most important, then leverage to the extent that you kind of feel comfortable with your own internal barometer of how much debt you're willing to take on in that um, uh, in that endeavor. And, and that's kind of what, um, you know, I came up with and it's exactly what I did. I did a cash out refinance in my home last year. I took all that money, uh, put a chunk of it into the wealth formula banking and put another chunk of it into some of the um, other offerings that we have through uh, the, uh, the investment. Yeah. I mean, I think the, the, the moral of the story is listen, at the end of the day, everybody makes, everybody makes their own decisions. So we're not making any, you know, financial, yep. um, you know, this is not financial advice, you know, and, and, you know, everybody needs, but the point of what we're trying to do is, Listen, there's a, uh, these questions are, off, off, are a lot more complicated than I think most financial advisors will give you uh, answers on. I mean, there's ways to think about them. The more you know, the more creative you can be and really come to some kind of a um, uh, strategy that, that works for you. Um, let's see. Is the same idea. Uh, uh, he, this is still Yaron, but he says... Um, uh, let's apply the same idea to my business property that I own. I have the ability to refinance at lower interest rates, as well as pulling out a fairly nice amount of cash. This cash could be used for paying off some of my business debt or deployed into an investment that could return enough to cover my monthly mortgage payment. I really don't know what to do here. Thanks. And I, here again, I would say, you know, if I'm you, if I'm you, I definitely get the lower interest in place, right? That's no doubt about that. However, I think uh, we are essentially, again, saying the same thing here is that maybe, you know, you keep it liquid through, you know, as I said, for me, one of my favorite ways to do this is through wealth formula banking, because I think it, if it is one of the safest things out there in terms of, of growth, um, 
But then if you keep it in, you know, and if you keep that money in the business, I think even potentially bigger than the target on your house is the target on your business. Uh, you know, because I know you're on, I think you're also a health professional as well. And so that's exactly kind of what you don't want to do. I think there's a way uh, in general, and I think what we're getting at is that you don't have to be a, a, a complete leverage to the hilt or a, you know, pay off my house to my business person. You can do something in between. Uh, but I like the idea of separating the risk by putting that equity, putting that capital somewhere else that's not in the direct line of fire of it, of everything else so anything else to add there guys yep. i agree just with you 100%. cool say just with the historically low interest rates at this point it's there's yeah. no better time to do it and if it you know five or ten years down the road it's better then you can lower your interest rate again at that point so um, right. i don't think there's any downside in, in in taking advantage of the rates as they are now to the extent you can yeah, but I would argue this. I would say something like, uh, look at the interest rate and that that delta in between what you are currently at and right now, and see if it's worthwhile. Because believe it or not, people are charging fees beyond belief to do refinances on things, right? And if you look and you look at those numbers, sometimes it may be not advantageous to say, I'm going to do this for a lower line. I'm doing this for a combination of a lower line and getting that equity out, right? figure out those numbers because then you can do the application. I've, I've learned that recently. And uh, I think everyone should be aware of that. Cool. We got uh, Nate Shy says, Hey Buck, you've addressed this in uh, recent episodes and we're all trying to figure it out, but I'm wondering what is going to happen with real estate, both multifamily <laughs> and single family house in the near future. As we've seen, Multifamily rent collections have held firm uh, and prices have not dropped at all, at least in the markets we're in, I guess. uh, Single family houses, uh, single family house markets across the country are spiking upwards. However, it is tough to make sense of this given the mass economic damage we have seen in the form of job losses and business closings. Stimulus ran out, but rent collections remain high as people are apparently using their savings and are close to depleting them. And now we have a new president who's stimulus friendly. So we are likely to see more bailouts, evictions, moratoriums, and other pro-tenant policies enacted. All of this lays on top of a backdrop of the Fed printing massive amounts of currency and saying that the interest rates will low for years. So my billion dollar question is, will the economic damage caused by COVID-19 ever propagate uh, through and cause rent collections to drop and thus multifamily prices? Will single family home uh, prices ever stabilize or go down? Or will the Fed and government policies thread the needle to avoid most of the pain and continue to drive up asset prices higher? Thanks. Well, good questions. Lots of them. Um, And I think a lot of people are thinking about this. So I'll take a spit at, you know, a lot of people have talked about this uh, in the way you have, and uh, I can almost hear it, uh, you know, from, from some of the other podcasters out there and myself who was early on um, during COVID really talking a lot about my concern about a tsunami of defaults, you know, after the initial insult uh, from COVID you know, in terms of single family homes, and we've seen this, uh, we, we've talked, when we talked to George Newberry about this, he kind of alluded it uh, to it as well. I still think that it's likely 
especially in middle-class neighborhoods where it's just a matter of someone losing their job and not being able to pay their mortgage, I think it's very likely that we may see um, some, uh, you know, some, some trauma there. Uh, and, you know, according to the data that George had, you know, I think he was just on a month or two ago, he was actually saying we were back to those levels of, you know, 2012 in terms of, uh, in terms of foreclosures and distress uh, in the single family home market. But we also talked about how the strong, the markets on the coasts and, you know, especially outside of the cities were. So, you know, it's not completely one way or another, but I do think there's distress coming, probably some distress uh, that wouldn't be surprised about in the, the um, working class single family house space. But here's what we've seen in multifamily and high growth markets we're in. Um, you know, people are paying rent, right? And overall, our portfolios, which is again, um, you know, four or $500 million of real estate, we've seen occupancies that are, uh, you know, they're similar to what we had in pre-COVID times. Uh, in the meantime, you know, we've also had these this uh, incredible good fortune, at least in terms of valuation, of decreasing falling interest rates, which no one thought was going to happen, except for Dave Steele of Western Wealth Capital. Um, and, and, you know, it was, he didn't know about COVID, but he was predicting lower rates. Um, and why is that important? Because that's pushing down cap rates uh, even more than they were. And also, uh, at the same time, there's a ton of you know, investor money out there that is brand new to our space because there's people who are in, you know, retail or office or whatever. Uh, they're looking for new home because that stuff got torched and it's no longer uh, doesn't look as safe as it was. So all of a sudden there's this new money that's been, uh, you know, added to the multifamily scenario, but they don't really know what they, they're doing and they don't really have, you know, a leg up on these opportunities like those of us who've been doing this for a while. So the assets that we bought a year or two ago, and the good news for people in, a, in our credit investor club is that I think we're going to benefit a heck of a lot from this, um, you know, in terms of valuations as we look at refis and investments in the next year or two. Uh, as far as rent collections going down, here's the thing, right? Like in the next couple of months, could it happen? Yeah, absolutely. It could happen. Sure, it could happen. But let's go back to the big picture. And the big picture is what you need to do when you invest. Why are you investing in these assets? They're not so that you can flip them in a month or two, right? Are you investing in them for rent collection over the next six months? Or are you investing in them to make a lot of money over the course of the next several years? And I think if you're, you're thinking about it in terms of the longer period, not just a few months. So what that means is that as long as we survive the next six months, which I think we have a very good chance of doing, I think that the next five to seven years after that are going to be very big growth years in the U.S. economy. I think we're going to see asset prices, you know, go up even more. Um, and frankly, that's why I am personally not worried. And as right now, very bullish on investing now, uh, as, um, as I have been in a very long time on these large multifamily assets and, and also in self-storage as well. I mean, self-storage was basically untouched through this space as well. Um, anyway, bottom line is we're going to get through the six months. We're going to kick butt. I mean, but anything can happen in the next six months. 
We're not investing for the next six months. Guys, anything to add to that? Do you have a comment on that, Matt? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I think, I, and I think there's going to be segments in certain parts of real estate in certain areas of the country that are going to feel it more than others. Um, but I think, you know, I, I remember before all this happened, you know, the end of 2018, and the constant question was, when's there's going to, when is there going to be a recession so I can get real estate on sale? And like people seem to forget that, you know, in the last five or so recessions that we've had, real estate's only been significantly affected in like two out of the five of them. So, um, and you got to go back and look at the, um, the fundamentals. The fundamentals were in 2008, we were overbuilt, uh, people were over leveraged, there was a lot of bad loans. And now it's, that's not happened. We're underbuilt. Uh, bank lending uh, has been relatively uh, safe. And so I don't think you're going to have nearly as many uh, foreclosures and, and such as you did before. And because you have all this money that's been sitting on the sidelines waiting for this event when real estate's going to go on sale, if it doesn't, I think the money's going to flood into these, um, you know, these, these assets and they're going to keep the asset prices uh, afloat, you know, and, you know, pumping $4 trillion into the economy isn't going to hurt either. Yeah. You know, the truth of the matter is, I'll tell you this much, Matt, is that the smart money, the big money out there is not looking in there thinking the multifamily market is tanking. They're not thinking that. They're not yeah. sitting on the sidelines. They are in. They're in and they're trying to buy. Um, the only people who are sitting on the sidelines right now, honestly, are mom and pop investors. And I think I think it's a mistake if you're if you are waiting for, you know, some sort of, you know, like I said, my zombie apocalypse scenario, I think you might be out of luck. So um, anything to add there, Jerry? I know you kind of fell off there for a second. Too. Yeah, no, that's that. I think I agree with you guys 100%. So, um, uh, you know, I have a few single family homes, right, that I look at and um, I have no problem getting renters right now. None. Matter of fact, they're applying to, to get into our properties before they even see the property. So that's the big change that I've seen. So there, there is a circle going around right now, but I, I totally agree with what you guys are saying. You know, the, the other thing is that um, traditionally when there's problems with single family foreclosures and stuff like that, that actually can help, you know, that can help multifamily markets multifamily. as well. And remember, you know, we, um, you know, for the last couple of years, we've really hyper-focused on a very specific niche within multifamily, which I think has really helped our cause. We've not, we've not gone for the, you know, the, the trophy uh, properties, you know, we're not looking at a class, you know, fancy schmancy stuff that you can show your friends. I mean, I mean, the properties we're buying are ugly, generally pretty ugly. Um, and you know, it's so what though? I mean, it's, it's middle-class property, right? It's middle-class working class people, uh, who need to rent, uh, and as times uh, get a, a little worse or less likely to buy homes, uh, they got to live somewhere. And so for us being able to, you know, be in that market. And I'm not talking about like, you know, D-class stuff. These are like hardworking people who need a place to live, Absolutely. you know, like construction workers, you're, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and, and then on top of that, we're also in these markets and um, like Dallas and Phoenix Scottsdale, where there's job growth is huge. And you're going to, you're going to see lots of that in the next uh, a few years here, lots of job growth. And you see a lot of migration outside of, you know, places like California. So I live in California. I love it, but I would never do business here. Right. And 
and uh, mm. and you're going to continue to see that flight. And so overall, I think it's a, a little bit of a segmentation here. There might be some stress, distress in, in some of these areas, but I, I think we're in pretty good shape. Similar question to that, Matt, uh, is Thessing is asked is, hello, Buck. I love the Ask Buck segments. Uh, Matt is actually in our group too, right? Well, Formula Network. Um, uh, he has a couple questions. He says, one, and this is similar, I can't help but think the once-in-a-lifetime effects of COVID-19 on our economy in some way, shape, or form would at some point also reveal once-in-a-lifetime buying opportunities for opportunistic investors. What and when do you see the major opportunities on the horizon? And not just specifically real estate or subclasses in real estate, uh, although I would like to hear your thoughts specifically on real estate as well. Well, again, you know, we just talked about multifamily. Uh, I just don't think we're going to see it. I think that people are waiting. Um, you know, it's it's going to be a very anticlimactic time uh, where you wait and you realize there was no uh, implosion. In fact, you're seeing prices go up. So I think that the idea of you know waiting um, on the sidelines for something inherently to me has a risk. You're deploying, if you're not deploying right now, um, I think markets get hotter and hotter. I think I don't see it in, in, in what we're doing, but other kinds of real estate, sure. I mean, the issue is, are you interested in those other things? Um, I'm, you know, you could probably get a pr pretty good bargain on some strip malls and office buildings and, you know, stuff like that. But I mean, we've seen part of why we never get into that stuff is because the volatility of, you know, a recession, uh, it, it does, these things just never seem to fare all that well. And so to me, I like boring multifamily people have to live somewhere and, uh, you know, self-storage people leave their stuff somewhere and they keep having to pay and they're it's too big of a pain in the butt for them to have to go move it if you raise their rent by six or seven dollars. But guess what? By the end of the year, everybody's you know stuff gets uh, raised by six or seven dollars, and there's a ten or fifteen percent net operating increase bump just from rent. I mean, so these are boring, but and not sexy. But that's what I that's what I, I like when it comes to investing. Um, do you guys have any comments on that? No, I agree. I think, sorry, go ahead and let you go, Jerry. Uh, okay, thank you. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, was say, I agree with you uh, 100% on that. Um, again, it goes back to the education. People aren't educated about these things. They're scrambling all over the place. The stock market makes everything jazzy and stuff, but boring is actually better when it comes to this. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Matt? Yeah, no, my thought is I think, yeah, it's going to be, I think there's going to be some deals in commercial uh, strip malls and what have you, uh, you know, shopping malls, I think are going to be distressed. I think certain areas, like I, I can't imagine commercial in New York City is going to be uh, going to be faring that well for a while. But again, are you interested in investing in that? No, I think outside of real estate, I do think there's probably going to be opportunities to buy businesses. Like if you've ever sure. wanted to be a restaurateur, I think, you know, in the next six months, if you can buy a restaurant that went out of business and started up yourself, there's gonna be a lot of pent up demand for people that haven't gone out to dinner for, you know, a year. And uh, that's where I think the opportunities are going to be is, is, is picking up businesses that, that have, uh, you know, on, uh, gone under and right. starting them again, just as the economy starts to uh, tick up as we start getting vaccinated and can start getting back to some semblance of normal. The word on the street is never buy a restaurant. I didn't say I was going to buy a restaurant. That's what I hear. Uh, yeah. it's, a, it's a tough business to make money. But yeah, I do think that there's probably some businesses 
out there. Um, but again, you know, like the stress test of this whole thing has, I think, um, uh, also provided some uh, insight into, you know, what kind of uh, businesses are more resilient than others. I mean, I do think that, um, you know, uh, my, you know, my brother's a, a private equity guy and, and, and uh, uh, he's, uh, we've talked about this a little bit about, you know, potentially looking at creating a fund of, of recession proof businesses and things like that. You know, what are those types of recession proof thing? Well, they generally correspond with like the seven deadly sins, right? That's <laughs> right. Know? It's like That's dream. Right. That's right. Well this year, <laughs> you know, all those kinds of things. So, so um, at any rate, I do think, um, yeah, I, I, I'm sure there's bargains out there, but I think, you know, one of the things I would, I would suggest if you're, you know, I, I, I think the real challenge in the, one of the lessons of my uh, years of fumbling around before I feel like I've gotten really good at what I'm doing is that if you, you know, chasing shiny objects, you know, and waiting for like the deal, waiting for, you know, some kind of, you know, home run uh, sometimes is, is a little bit dangerous, right? Um, especially when you're looking for in, in a distressed market, okay, what else can I buy? Can I buy a business? Yeah, sure. You could buy a business. Do you know anything about running a business? I mean, so, so, so it becomes a, it becomes really challenging. And I would, I would again, just, you know, try to keep it as boring as possible. And, you know, and, and, you know, listen, uh, we had Dave Steele on, uh, Western Wealth Capital, um, you know, buying ugly buildings, making them look not as ugly. And, you know, uh, they're averaging just around 30% annualized return uh, to investors after, you know, or after 30 investments. So, so, you know, what's exciting that, you know, you could do real estate development, you're still not going to get returns like that. You, you could, you know, I mean, shoot, there's just not much out there. So I would just caution against trying to look for things that are, you know, bargain basement prices, because even if they are, you may not be the guy to buy them. So um, he has another question, Matt says, uh, how does your investing strategy change with a Biden presidency with control of the Senate and without control or and without control of the Senate, depending on the outcome in Georgia? Well, I mean, all you can do is, um, you know, right now, listen, the laws are, uh, have not changed. We still have bonus depreciation, which is a hundred percent bonus depreciation, which is a big part of my personal strategy. So if it's me until, you know, until there's legislation in Congress on the table, um, nothing, you know, nothing is allowed to, from my understanding, and somebody correct me if I'm wrong, but not until that point can something be retroactive to that point. So, um, so say, for example, you know, February comes around, March comes around and nobody's put any legislation on, on you know, losing 100% bonus depreciation for the year uh, for 2021. My understanding is we can take that up until that point. Um, guys, you may want to comment on that, but I, I believe that's the case. But bottom line is for me, I'm going to continue just um, investing in good assets because I think the danger you can get yourself into is trying to time all of this. Now, what do they tell you? Let's, let's borrow from, for a moment from our, you know, traditional wealth uh, advisor 
types. They just tell you, well, just keep putting money in and, you know, over the long term, you'll, you'll be fine. Uh, and of course, you know, that, you know, with stocks and stuff like that, it's, you know, it's not my, my space, but what I can say is that I know a very high of very high profile syndicators and real estate people who've barely bought anything in the last five years because of this idea that there was going to be a big, big implosion of real estate and asset prices. Guess what? Uh, Western Wealth Capital is only just six and a half years old. One of their investors went from 750 grand of uh, principal initially is now up to $4 million in principal. That happened during that period of time. And to sit around and wait five, six years, you know, waiting for uh, the sky to fall uh, is, I think, has its own inherent risk. So what do you do? My thought is you continue to deploy capital. You, if you continue to deploy capital over a period of time, you're going to hit some periods in time where it was, in hindsight, the best time ever to buy. And sometimes you're going to buy when, well, maybe it was not as good. But what we're trying to do here is create overall solid returns with good assets. You try to predict the future more than that, chances are not good that you're going to win that. Guys? Well, I mean, I agree. I mean, I think it's the idea of just constantly being involved and constantly figuring out where, you know, once you have a chunk of money that you can deploy, where's the best place to, to put it? Um, I think, uh, you know, I, I just think you got to be involved and you got to be looking and uh, taking your money and just putting it on the sidelines for five years is probably not going to be a great long-term strategy. And instead of looking for home runs, you know, just keep swinging. And, you know, most baseball teams yeah. are won with a series of home runs and a series of yeah. singles and a series of doubles. And so you just got to be constantly swinging. And along that lines, Matt, I would just add that, you know, in the way we do real estate, which is buying, you know, real estate that's already cash flow positive and just making it better. Um, you know, if you have a good, really good operator like the WWC guys or you know, or you know, uh, Dante Rituro, um, it's it's actually like, you know, hitting singles and doubles uh, on a regular basis is kind of like, you know, we should be we're batting near a thousand, right? I mean. It's not like we're losing a property every five properties or something. Real estate in the hands of people who know what they're doing has a level of, you know, shall I say, fudge factor to it. But it's really with, with people really know what they're doing. Um, you know, hitting singles and doubles on a regular basis should not be that hard. And then getting home runs, your occasional home runs, some of it's going to be luck, you know, as well. Yeah. So, you know, we've been doing this upright for a long time, no matter what administration was in play. Now, my perspective is it's always been good when the government is divided, right? When you have, uh, you know, Republican mm -hmm. Congress or Democrat president or something like that, because they there's a check and balance there. Not one party's leading over another. And um, but when we look at real estate, we always can sniff these things out because we're always looking at the boring stuff, as we're saying. And the government usually never gets in there. We just follow the rules that they, they lay out. And they're usually, again, as you said, never retroactive, if you will. So, yeah. Well, I don't think, you know, I think they've tried to do that. I just, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't pan out though. And I don't think it's, sure. I, don't, I don't know if it's constitutional to change the law in hindsight, but 
I also wonder how much of the concern that people have about what's going to happen with the taxes and all this other stuff. It, it, it doesn't necessarily affect what we're doing as real estate investors. It's almost like this kind of like dirty secret of the, the government is that, you know, they're going to campaign on raising taxes. But when push comes to shove, I think everyone in a position of authority and power realizes that if they do a lot to destabilize the real estate market, they're going to destabilize the entire economy. So if you're invested in real estate, you're not only protected because real estate is a great asset class, but I think you're, re you're protected because the people that govern us know not to mess with it too much too quickly because it's going to cause problems if they do. The irony of that, guys, is that, you know, we're talking about this as if, okay, you know, Biden administration comes in and because they're Democrats, they're going to, you know, torch the place. And I think that, you know, let's, here's the facts, right? I mean, first of all, this guy's a moderate, right? I mean, he's a moderate. He's not, he's not out, he's not Bernie Sanders, right? Um, but if you look historically uh, at the at economies, whether they're controlled by Democrats or Republicans, they're almost dead even and in terms of GDP growth. And what you see is, if anything, there's a very small advantage for Democrats. And I'm not saying it's because of the Democrats. I'm saying it's because it doesn't matter who's president. Right. Um, the other thing I will tell you is, to the extent that we talk about um, you know, Republican versus Democratic administrations affecting things, if you think about the biggest single piece of legislation for real estate investors in the last 50 years. It was in the 80s under Ronald Reagan. Reagan. Yep. Uh, it used to be the case that, you know, now we're talking about the real estate professional designation and all that stuff, being able to take those passive losses. Well, it used to be that, you know, guys like Matt, you know, they'd be doctors. And back then, Matt, doctors used to make a lot more money than they do now. <laughs> so... So Matt would be coming with his two million bucks, you know, at, uh, per year uh, as a as a family practice doctor, or whatever he would be, you know, back in the day, and um, all that depreciate they the doctors just buy a bunch of real estate, and they wouldn't care about it, you know, but because what was happening was that they could take passive losses against active income. And the, the politicians that, did it too, right? Yeah. That's how they become, they come in poor and they come out rich. Right. Well, <laughs> right? so that was something they could do, right? They, so they bought up tons and tons of real estate. And I remember actually Ken McElroy talking about being a young uh, property manager and he was managing properties for these doctors who had no clue what they were doing. And he couldn't figure out why they were, you know, buying property. Well, this is why, because they were taking all those passive losses and uh, from these, you know, apartment buildings, right? So bottom line is uh, it, that, that was a, you know, the, that is the conservative icon uh, who, you know, by the way, I, I mean, I'm a big Reagan fan. My family's a big Reagan family, but that was a conservative Republican icon that, under which that happened. So I just don't think that you can say one administration ver versus another. I think you continue to do what you're doing. Um, you know, some of the things that all of the stuff that Biden is current, you know, that they've even suggested, you know, like elimination of 1031s, all that, which probably is not going to happen, doesn't really even affect us as, um, you know, as, uh, you know, limited partner investors and in syndications. Uh, you know, the only thing that I think could potentially uh, expire quicker 
is the 100% bonus depreciation. Now remember bonus depreciation used to be 50% bonus depreciation. So bonus depreciation eliminate, it doesn't mean it necessarily is gonna be eliminated. It might just go back to like 50%, right? So I would just not worry about it. I think it's, uh, I think everything's gonna be just fine. All right, um, so it's from Robert uh, Holland. He says, are there any creative ways to get my real estate syndication and investments, such as with uh, Western Wealth Capital, out of the self-directed IRA without paying the typical uh, a, a typical tax plus penalty? Goal would be obviously to capitalize on bonus depreciation and to, pers- and to personal real estate portfolio, which can be reinvested together, growing the portfolio amount more quickly. Um, thanks. So, you know, it's a, we've talked about this concept in, in our group guys, right? I mean, Wealth Formula Network, again, we've talked about it there. There have been some interesting talks we've had. Um, there are ways in theory that if, you, you know, securities, because they these kinds of securities uh, that you invest in technically have um, reduced value because they're not something that's easy to be liquidated. So in theory, they have um, lower valuations. And so you know, that kind of thing might work towards decreasing the value of those investments for valuation purposes. And if you're trying to, 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 um, you know, do something like that, we are still working through that in our group. I mean, multiple people are talking about it. We've got some experts, um, you know, trying to navigate the space, but we don't have a very clear way of doing it. We've also talked about using, you know, and I know some of, uh, you know, uh, people out there have used conservation easements uh, in the past to, to mitigate some of the tax penalties. Um, that's basically leverage giving. Now, I should point out that uh, we are uh, concerned about conservation easements this year, but a similar strategy is uh, fee simple donation. And um, you know, we've talked about those within Investor Club. Again, not giving you advice, but these are some of the things that people have done to help mitigate those. Guys, do you have anything to add for Robert there? I mean, looking at it, I think there's there's a couple of tax issues with using a, specifically a self-directed IRA. Um, I think the first question, you know, the first tax concern is the uh, is the uh, UBIT tax that may get incurred by using an IRA versus a solo 401k. Um, so there is a way around that, which is if you have the ability to put together a solo 401k, you can roll over what you have in your IRA into the solo 401k and avoid the uh, UBIT tax or the, the tax on the leveraged portion of your gains. Um, but my guess is that this question is more pointed out to like, how is it I get my money out of a qualified plan into my own personal uh, my own personal fund so that I don't have to you know, worry about this. And there's not an easy way to do it. I mean, once you put your money into those plans, you've made a contract with the government that says, we're going to partner with you to help you grow your investments. And as soon as you break that contract by pulling your money out, you're going to get hit with a 10% penalty and whatever additional tax you have on the earned income. And then that's when conservation easements or investing in oil and gas or something like that comes into play to um, decrease that, uh, that liability, the tax liability. Sounds good. Yeah, those are, I just tell the guys that generally speaking, when it comes to these IRA 401k questions, I usually bow out because I don't know very much about them. Uh, another one of those, um, I'm going to throw at you guys, because again, you guys are the, you know, you guys actually have these kinds of accounts, I guess, <laughs> is uh, from Stefan um, Georgiev. He says, I left a company that I work for. I'm self-employed now, and I want to convert my employer-sponsored 401k 
was self-directed IRA. Well, first of all, maybe we just self-directed 401k would be better. So 401k, but can I convert yeah. it into a self-directed Roth IRA? And what fees taxes should I expect to pay for the, that conversion? Or should I just convert it to a standard self-directed IRA? Lastly, what's the good resource or direction you can recommend to go about this, uh, this stuff? So again, guys, you guys are the ones with the IRAs and 401k type things. So tell me what, tell me what to do, Jerry. So I have an existing 401k with my uh, company that I, I work for. And I looked into actually taking the money I have in there and transfer it over to um, a Roth. And it can be done. Uh, you're right, you get hit with some penalties. More importantly, though, you're hit at ordinary income. So I have to pay all the taxes on that, that the government have forgiven me. And I think, Matt, you hit it right on, you made a contract with them in the beginning uh, to take that money and bring it over. And so it effectively was not very good to do that. So there's a lot of things you have to jump through to do it. It's better off that we start at young, not old. Unless, you know, Matt, I guess you, you said... Um, you used to be in a practice uh, and maybe are out of it now. If you become unemployed and you have less income, your tax rate would go down. That's the time you probably want to transfer over from uh, and a traditional 401k over to a Roth, in my opinion. Go ahead, Matt, please. Yeah, no, I think there's a couple of aspects. So the first is that not everybody can do that. So let's say you have your money in a 401k or a 403b, which is like the uh, nonprofit version of a 401k. Um, you may not be able to move the money at all unless you've left your employer. So in Stefan's case here, having leave the, left the employer, you now have a separation of service. And because he didn't go work for another job and is now self-employed, that gives him an opportunity to start an LLC, a professional corporation or something along those lines. Once you have that in place, that then allows you to um, do a number of things. So you have choices, right? Should I, should I open up an IRA? Well, the answer is you can do an IRA to like Fidelity or something along those lines, but you're uh, your investment choices are going to be limited. If you open a self-directed IRA, um, now you have a little bit more freedom that you can invest in different things. However, yeah. investing in uh, things that use leverage like real estate or syndications, you're going to get that UBIT tax again. So um, the best option, I think, at least for Stefan, and again, I'm not a, an accountant, but it would be to then use the fact that you're self-employed, create a company, uh, uh, start a solo 401k, which also has a Roth, which you can have a Roth component to it, exactly. and then roll over the money from the so from the prior 401k into the solo 401k. Um, and then at certain points, when your earned income for any particular year is low, that gives you the opportunity to convert from the solo 401k into the Roth, um, which is considered uh, earned income. Um, but if you're doing it in a year where your earned income is low, that's going to mitigate your, um, yeah. your, your taxes. Um, so, and that's, a, that's, that's what I did. I mean, I left my practice and I started my own professional corporation and I just recently, uh, set up a solo 401k for myself. Um, how much did it cost? The company I use, it was a few thousand dollars. There's probably places you can go to get it done less expensively, um, but uh, that was the cost. Um, I looked in a couple of companies. It cost me two or three thousand uh, dollars to to set up uh, uh, to set that up. There are some resources out there. I think if you go online and you look up solo four hundred one k or self directed four hundred one k, there's there's resources out there, and uh, you know talk to other people that have done it, and um, they can point you in the right direction for referrals. Yeah, unfortunately, we don't do a lot of like the referrals uh, in. 
these podcasts uh, because, you know, obviously if you, something goes wrong on those, we don't want you to tell us that. You told me. <laughs> you told me. So yeah. We always say, you know, we're not, we're not giving you financial advice. This is almost like a little peer group. Exactly. And then the peer group is, you know, telling you, but that's where, by the way, that's where Wealth Formula Network is very useful because we can speak very openly and we can use yeah. names of companies, et cetera, because then we're truly just like a bunch of people just sharing information. Yep. So, um, but there that, is, by the way, is exactly what I did. So one of yeah. the other members of Wealth Formula, who you put me in contact with, we right. called offline, we chatted for an hour right. and ended right. up yeah, just taking his advice and went with the company that he used. Okay, um, one uh, last question, and then we'll call it a day here, guys. And this is like sort of a, this is a young person named uh, Austin Co uh, Connor, and he says, good evening, Mr. Buck. Mr. Buck, I like that. It's like, yeah. Mr. <laughs> Buck. At least give me a Dr. Buck. Come on. Yeah, um, Dr. Mr. Buck. <laughs> good evening, uh, Mr. Buck. I am asking uh, if you can recommend any way to find a mentor. I'm 19 years old and I am just trying to learn as much as I can. There are a lot of scams out there and people just want you to become an employee for them most of the time. I listen to Well Formula podcasts and the Rich Dad podcast and some other investing podcasts too. I also read investment books too. But I feel like I'm at the point where I need someone to help point me in the right direction to where I want to go. Uh, thank you for the information you've provided me thus far. Um, podcast. So, you know, this is a, it, it's a tough one. And I, and I try to think about this, Austin, because the thing about it is this concept, this idea of having like this, like mentor, this wise person in your life who you turn to, I, I don't think I really had that. Um, you know, it's funny, my dad, my, my dad is a, a real estate investor, but I didn't pay any attention to real estate because the way he did it, you know, it was like, you know, tenants, termites, you know, all that. I hated it. Right. The phone would be ringing off the, so I, I didn't really see him in any, and, and outside of real estate, he's like the worst investor in the history of the world. Right. I mean, he literally, but, you know, Bitcoin, you know, he had me buy him Bitcoin. And then when it went down, he was like, sell it, sell it. I'm like, what do you mean? Um, and of course, he ended up uh, selling it. And since then, it tripled. And now he's like, I should buy it, you know, it, but he's good at real estate. Um, so but, but the point is that for me personally and guys, I, I would love to hear your take on this. I think the concept of having a physical like human being who's like this wise old, older, let's say older, because I'm not that old. I'm like gentleman in your life uh, who can, you know, guide you along the way usually doesn't pan out. I mean, some most of the time, you know, if that happens, it's like it happens to be you're working with somebody, you have a job and, you know, your boss is guiding you along the way. But what I will tell you is in my personal life. Um, if you ask me who my mentors are, they're people who I follow, who follow, I followed early on, or I listened to, or I read their books, because you don't need um, necessarily somebody telling you exactly what you need to do, because that's just not the way life works. You need to know what the options are out there. You need to understand who you resonate with and develop your own, you know, person based on that. Um, you know, a good, so for me, um, I'll always say, um, uh, my initial, you know, my, 
biggest mentor of my professional life is clearly Robert Kiyosaki, right? For me, of course, I don't really like, I don't go back and read Kiyosaki books. I mean, I, but the whole point is that he kind of, his, his writings and his teachings really formed sort of the basis of the way I think about um, finance, personal finances. Um, you know, he has a lot of other theories and stuff. I'm not really, you know, I don't, you don't have to follow everything that everybody says, but, but I've had him on the show a couple of times. I've told him effectively he single-handedly changed my life. Now I only met Robert, you know, four or five times now. Uh, and I, I think now he would actually recognize me and know my name. Uh, um, but it doesn't mean that that's any less valuable. He doesn't need to know me. I know his work. I know his thoughts. Uh, and similarly, let's look at, you know, Robert's, uh, Robert Kiyosaki's own story. Of course, he had the story of the rich dad and all that. And maybe he really had this person in his life. But if you read Robert's books, and I'm not just talking about rich dad, poor dad, he goes back over and over to Buck, Buckminster Fuller, right? This is a guy who has very clearly influenced Robert Kiyosaki's life. And he calls him his mentor. But then it's not like he was hanging out with Bucky Fuller all the time. He went to some Bucky Fuller seminars. He read his books. And that's why he calls him his mentor. So I think that the moral of the story is, I think it's almost sort of like a, a practice in futility to go out and try to you know, mentorship you know, out of the blue. The reality is if you, if you LinkedIn somebody, you email somebody and say, I'm 19, I need, you know, I, I want, you know, I want, I want to be like you someday. I want to do this kind of stuff. As much as people are nice, people just, just generally don't have the time. And, and that's, that's the sad truth about it. Um, so, but the good news is we live in a society, in a world with podcasts and with the internet and, all of this where the influences in your life do not have to be limited to living, breathing human beings in your living room. Guys, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah. I mean, I, I think the idea that you're going to approach someone and be like, can you be my mentor? Um, they're gonna be like, yeah, sure. Um, probably isn't going to happen. Um, just because yeah, everyone's busy, everyone's doing their own thing. And so, you know, I think there's different types of mentorship, right? So you have, um, you know, you have like the idea of a paid mentorship and that doesn't necessarily mean it's a scam, but there are certain people out there that will be happy to have, you know, you, what you bring to the table is dollars um, and they will help guide you through. Um, and there are people that do that legitimately and provide a good value if you have the finances for it. Um, at 19 years old, you probably don't. Um, and then there has, but there's something else that you probably have that other people don't, and that's time. So if you can make yourself available to people that you would want to mentor you and bring a certain element of value to them um, and constantly kind of trying to help and figure out that the, the mentorship uh, relationship may grow naturally out of you giving of yourself, you giving of your time and you trying to make yourself a valuable asset to that person. And that value that you put out into the universe will then eventually work its way back to you. Um, and so that's, that's, that's probably a better way to go about it. Um, you know, identify people in your community. If you're interested in real estate, um, maybe go to some of the real estate meetup groups, and then you'll start, start networking and meeting people that are doing what maybe you want to do. And then, you know, 
try to try to come up with them and don't be like, can you measure me? Say, you know, I'm, I'm, you're doing this, whatever, you know, do you need help with your website or can I help you with marketing or, you know, what is it that I can do for you to help you with your business? I really want to learn from you. And if you offer to bring something to the table, you're much more likely to get a receptive response. And if that doesn't work, like Buck said, you know, the internet is there and you literally have all of human knowledge at your fingertips. And, uh, you know, the internet's more for than just funny cat videos. So use it to educate yourself. And you may find that need for mentorship is eclipsed by the ability to access the knowledge of, you know, millions of people across the globe that are trying, that have already done what you're trying to do. I would just also I mean, point out one other thing, which is that, and I, I think, I think what Matt saying is, uh, 100% true that, you know, um, it, it really is about what you can do for a mentor, not the other way around. Right. Um, that I've said this before and, you know, I don't know if you're in college or if you're, you know, working or whatever, but, uh, my advice to my own children, uh, after they finish college or whatever is, is, uh, you know, will be okay. Now go out and get some jobs in in areas that are of interest to you because there's no better way uh, to learn about an industry than to actually work in it. And guess what? They'll pay you. They may not pay you much, but if you look at these early jobs in your early life, not as, you know, ways to make some money, but actually as education, it's huge. I have at least two, uh, so there's me and then there's at least two other guys that I know who started their first business based on like basically ripping off a business that they, that they worked in, learned everything about the business, took it on their own, became millionaires. Uh, that is, uh, that's just something else to consider. Jerry, uh, you have anything else to add to this? No, I, I think I agree with you guys. Thank you. <laughs> okay, great. Um, I was gonna say the other thing that I would add to just looking at this 19 year old kid who's already asking these questions means you're going to do well, right? Like at 19 years old, these weren't even things that are on my, on my mind. You know, when I think about going to medical school, like, like I studied hard, I paid, you know, my, my course my father paid for college. I paid for medical school. I mean, like, you know, it's like a decade of my life was spent learning to do something before I got paid one cent to do it. And in fact, that decade of my life, hundreds of thousands of dollars were spent in my education. So like, you know, if at 19 years old, you decide you don't want to go to medical school to try to, you know, make a living, like you got a long time where you can put yourself into a position where you can be of value to somebody else and build up your skills, build up your knowledge set. And that mentorship will come and you'll be successful. I got a uh, text uh, uh, from someone who's uh, with my uh, eight-year-old right now. And it reads, uh, she's reading a Christmas book. It depicts Santa smoking a pipe. She is very concerned that Santa needs to stop smoking so he does not get cancer. <laughs> uh, uh, on that note, uh, we should uh, call it a day. Guys, thanks so much uh, for being, I mean, this is two days in a row. You did uh, Wealth Formula Network. We went for a good hour and a half, uh, you know, yesterday. You're on again today. Thanks. Uh, it's a lot more fun uh, with you guys than doing it on my own. So uh, do you have anything else to uh, add before we go, guys? Yes, thanks for having us on. It was, uh, it was fun and, uh, you know, it was a good experience. Thank you. Fantastic. Jerry? 
Yes, it was. Uh, thank you very much as well. I, I enjoyed it. Good. Fantastic. All right, guys. Take care. Thanks. Right, thank Thanks, guys. Stay back. We will be right back. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Again, I want to remind you, if you like this format, you might really like to be part of Wealth Formula Network. So go to wealthformularoadmap.com and uh, you can sign up for the course there. And that, of course, comes along with membership to Wealth Formula Network. You can do these biweekly Zoom calls, lots of content constantly. If you like to geek out on financial strategies and education and, you know, really get the real dirt on everything. It's a great place to be. Go to wealthformularoadmap.com. Other than that, hopefully you have a great holiday ahead of you. And uh, I will see you next week uh, with probably another episode of Ask Buck, although we may take a detour. This is Buck Joffrey with Wealth Formula Podcast signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time. Buck Joffrey here from Sapio with Buck Joffrey. Aging might become reversible over the next 10 to 20 years. It's already being done in lab animals, so it's just a matter of time. Our challenge? To be healthy enough for when that time comes. As a former scientist and surgeon myself, my goal is to figure out how to do that and to share it with you. I wrote a book called Living Longer for Busy People that you can download for free at sapiopodcast.com. You'll be amazed at just how a few daily adjustments can add years of a healthy life for you. Again, download it for free, sapiopodcast.com.